0: Uh, I want us to begin by noting that um, the, uh, the, the framework that John gives here, right in verse 1, uh, for this particular passage of Scripture is the Passover. And in John's Gospel in particular, if you remember, the, a, lot of the, a lot of the stories and events are taking place around these, these feasts. And um, one of the reasons why we know that Jesus ministered for uh, a little over three years um, is because of these, these time markers. Chapter 2 talks about the first Passover. Chapter 6 uh, talks about the second Passover. And now chapter 11 and 12 are bringing up this last Passover, ultimately, which is the one right before his death. And so we know that there were three years then, simply based on that and other things, that Jesus was ministering um, for uh, a season. So for, for three years, he walked around Judea, Galilee, Samaria healing people, casting out demons, teaching about the good news, and also raising uh, the dead. That was his public ministry, and we enter now into what we call a a private ministry. There's a number of people there, it's just that he's not standing out in, in front of the public proclaiming and teaching and doing stuff. This is taking place now in the quietness of someone's home. Now, the religious authorities, if you remember, Um, are not just angry with Jesus, they have officially gathered together and determined purposefully that they are going to arrest Jesus so that they can put him to death. And so all along in John's gospel, there's been little bits and pieces of antagonism, but it got to the point at the end of chapter 11 where it became a formality and they agreed together in the Sanhedrin, this is what we're going to do. And I, I share that just to help us understand the context in which this event takes place. In fact, um, I think John kind of gives us some bookends here, might want to say a sandwich of sorts that helps us understand uh, the actual setting of what is going on in this particular passage. Notice verse 55 of chapter 11. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves, they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come down or come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So this is happening in John's account here right before this event that's taken place in this home. And then at the end of this story, verse 9, notice what it says. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So you have this, this kind of, um, Bookmark, so to speak, of superficial uh, belief, these Jews that are hearing about this, that are responding to Jesus, and that, that's more in chapter 11, you get a little bit of here in chapter 12, the Jews are somewhat su- superficial, you also though get this, this, this context of hostility from the, from the chief priests, which would be a representation of the Sanhedrin, that are out to, to, to put him to death and to catch him. And then you also have the, this, this little window, this beautiful window here of, uh, of belief that is talked about in verse 11 of chapter 12 here. Why are, they, why are the chief priests wanting to put Lazarus to death? Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So there is genuine belief. There is this superficial, like, wow, I want to I see this, this person, you know, like, almost like a, you know, a, a circus sideshow, so to speak. And then there is this hostility. So there's there's all these different things that are taking place here, and it's happening in Jerusalem, and and this location is near Jerusalem, so certainly in that area, in that territory, this is taking place. And yet, in the midst of all that, what we have here is a resurrection celebration. What we have here is a gathering of God's people celebrating what Jesus did in raising Lazarus from that tomb. So it's important for us to note um, as we begin here that the, the account here of this wonderful, uh, worshipful uh, behavior of Mary and this gathering is also recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. And there are some small differences in the accounts, um, and those small differences really are not significant. They don't, they don't contradict one another. If anything, they, they give a fuller, Uh, perspective on what's going on. And just a little side note, oftentimes you will read in the different gospels the same story, but maybe there's some different information in those different stories. And and don't think from that perspective, it's like, oh, they're contradicting each other. No, they're seeing things from a different angle or presenting parts of the the events of the story to, to argue their point. I mean, John is doing what? He is giving evidence so that you can believe, and through that belief you will have life. So he's giving that perspective um, but it's a little different what, than what Mark says and what Matthew says, but they complement each other and give a fuller understanding of what is actually taking place. In fact, there's two primary things, I think, that are distinguished by those, two, those three different accounts. First of all, um, in the other accounts, it mentions that this home is Simon the leper's home. So that we, we have to, as we go through this passage, ask ourselves the question, even though he's not mentioned, is he there? It's a possibility but they're gathered in that particular home based on the other accounts. Secondly, um, the extent of the anointing that goes on in our text is a little different than the extent of the anointing that takes place in the others. The other accounts it talks about uh, is Mary anointed his head. John identifies that Mary anointed his feet. And if we actually step back and get the fuller picture, she's really anointing his body, okay? That's the fuller picture here, but G, uh, here John is focusing on uh, her anointing of his feet. Um, and so it, it just kind of completes the picture and helps us understand a little bit more of what's going on. So as we, as we press on this particular text, there are gonna be uh, three uh, different lessons for us that take place at this dinner celebration. One lesson has to do with fellowship, one has to do with hypocrisy, and one has to do with worship. So three lessons that we can can learn, we can glean from this particular passage um, at this dinner party, this this dinner celebration. Let's just begin by reading verses one and two. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. And so as I mentioned, this was a dinner celebration given by Martha and Mary and Lazarus to honor Jesus for what he had done in raising Lazarus from the dead. Now my family has just gone through a season of lots of celebration. We had a graduation party for my son Gavin, but it was also a you're going into the Marines party. He went into the Marines, did boot camp, and we went down and we celebrated his graduation from the Marines and had a dinner down there. And then he came home, and because he's home, we invited family over to celebrate the fact that he, you see, it's just all these different celebrations that are going on. Why? Because there's things to celebrate. Now, we can celebrate birthdays, and sometimes you have to say, well, not this year, son, we'll do it next year, you know, the big one, you just, you know, we'll... We'll get McDonald's this time or whatever, you know. But, but you know, we, we, we celebrate different things. It's possible San Francisco is going to celebrate tonight. I don't know why, but it's possible. Okay? And, and things happen in this world, things happen in life that are worth celebrating. But, friends, when you have a loved one who has died and who's been in the tomb for four days, and Jesus comes along and says, come out, and he comes out. You have something to celebrate. And we've got we to understand the impact and the emotions and the celebration that is going on with these friends, with this family, and those who are there in this, particular, uh, in this particular context. And not just see it as here's just a dinner, you know, they're passing the food around, that's it. Martha is there, Mary's there, Lazarus is there, Jesus is there, along with the 12 disciples. It's possible also that Simon. Uh, who was a former leper, was there also because we're told that it's his home. And Scripture doesn't record all the conversation that is going on there. But listen, if if, if you're a guy, you're with these disciples, and you're celebrating, you're, you're kind of loosening up a little bit. Isn't that usually what happens with guys? It's something where you're, you're happy about, you're celebrating. By no means do I mean to uh, to, to be disrespectful in what I'm about to say because I'm going to try and just kind of think through a little bit of what's going on here. But I'm sure there was some conversation that, that, was, that was celebratory, that was praise, that was expressions of amazement, that you know, went through the story again, um, that there was also some humor, uh, there was some humility and some joy mixed in. All these things were taking place. And so just imagine that Simon, if he was there, um, if he was present, started to talk about maybe how Jesus came and cured him of his leprosy. I mean, Simon, you know, we're, we're here to celebrate Lazarus, but didn't he do something in your life? And Simon is turning and saying, yes, he did. I was, I was full of leprosy, and, and he, he healed me, and, and, and the sores fell off, and my hair started to grow back, and my, 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 my limbs started to, 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 to grow again. It was amazing to, to see this miracle that was taking place. I mean, to be sure, that kind of conversation was going on. And then Lazarus says, yeah, well, you think you got it good. I was dead. I mean, I went to paradise. I saw all the big guys. And I tell you what, the funniest thing is when I heard come out, I came out, and Peter, you should have seen your eyes. They were like, bing! And Peter's thinking, okay, you know, I got to join in this conversation too. And he's a guy, and he's probably saying to himself, you know, hey, hey Lazarus, you know, when, when you came out, you should have just gone, like that. And it would have been really, really funny. All those, you know, garments on and stuff. Now, listen, I'm just saying guys talk like that, all right? When we celebrate, we, we remind ourselves of the things that, we find humor in things that maybe at that moment were not funny. They were serious, but it's all part of celebration. But what we have recorded here are some, some attitudes, some comments, some behaviors that that Jesus brings to bear in particular, that John brings to bear in this context of celebration. So the reason I I walked you through those things which are speculative but possible is to help you understand that this was not just a little somber moment where people are sitting around like, you know, Jesus. This was celebration. These are real people. You get it? Okay not trying to be humorous, just to be humorous. I'm not trying to be funny, just to to get a laugh. I'm trying to help create a mood. This is a time of celebration. Let me pause here for a second. I have had the privilege um, as a pastor of of being a part of people's lives um, when they have lost a loved one. I I enter in sometimes right after they find out that someone passed away. And during that time before, uh, from that time before the actual funeral takes place, I'm interacting with the family to some degree. And and there are different stages that that take place. There's the, the whole kind of shock and numbness of it all. There's the overcoming with grief. There's the, you know, what are we gonna do? And then as the family begins to gather, as it comes from different places, they get together. And what they do is they sit down and they start remembering that person. And then they start remembering that person's quirks. And then the stories come out. And you move from this somber sadness to this laughter. Often that's the case, especially when you're talking about those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and sometimes if you're on the outside, if you walked into that, you'd be shocked because you think, this person just died, and the family's in there just laughing it up. Why? Because they're remembering the life. They're rejoicing over it. And so my, my point here is just to, to remember Yes, this is a somber occasion, this is a time to celebrate, but it's also a time when people just uh, adore life for what it is because of who Jesus Christ is, okay? Now, um, so here we have these friends who are experiencing this relief, this, this freedom, this joy as they gather together here. And I want you to notice, first of all, the diversity of their of their fellowship. This is is fellowship, they're they're, they're gathered, talking, celebrating, they're with Jesus here. And John looks back on this occasion, he chooses three pictures, I believe, just in this story that that help us to understand this diversity of fellowship. First of all, there's Martha, and uh, she is worshiping Jesus through her service. Uh, we, We typically find Martha doing what? I mean, this is Martha Stewart before Martha Stewart was around, right? I mean, she is just busy, busy in the kitchen, serving people, exercising hospitality. That is what she loves. That is her, her form, you might want to say, of worship to her God. And some of you are just like Martha. If I asked you to come up here and to speak, to read a verse of Scripture, you would be shaking in your boots, You wouldn't want to do that. But if I said, put on a dinner for the church, you say, I'm your person. I can do that. I'll work behind the scenes. I'll be in the kitchen. I love to help people in that particular arena. You're gifted there, and you do it for the glory of God. And that is a gift to the body of Christ. And that gift helps the body of Christ worship their Lord and Savior. It's part of the package but it's part of the way that people do worship God. Then you also have Mary. Mary worships Jesus by sitting at his feet. She loves to hear him teach. She loves to listen to what he has to say. In in fact, we mentioned this last week, but you you just typically find Mary sitting at his feet. She sat at his feet when he was teaching, she she came at his feet when Lazarus died and she's mourning, and then we find her here worshiping at Jesus' feet. This is where she wanted to be. This is how she was expressing her her love and adoration for Jesus. Martha's busy, you know, getting the the cream brulee and all that other stuff together. And and Mary is there anointing his feet. Is one better than the other? The answer is no. But they are different. And there is diversity. Then you have Lazarus. Now, Lazarus doesn't say anything. Maybe it's because he's a guy. I don't know. He's there, he's eating, he's enjoying the food. But what is it that Lazarus has that no one else in that room has? He has the story. (laughs) I mean, Lazarus didn't go to sleep one day and say, you know what, tomorrow I wanna do something really, really wow so that people can look at my life and I can give glory to God. No, he died. He was buried. He was there for four days. And he was made alive by the Lord Jesus Christ. And guess what? He has a story to tell. And there are people in, the, in this room here who have a story to tell. Your life is a testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you worship God by talking about your story. Not bragging, but just, just telling. So Lazarus, what, let me tell, what's been going on in your life? Well, oh, if you didn't know... Um, I mean, that's it. It's like, it, it, the, the lead-ins are really easy. So what were you doing last week? Well, um, all right, he's not, he's not waiting on the tables. He's not there anointing Jesus' feet. He, he's just, he's there. But you can understand that his method of worship would be to tell the story, to, to testify. And friends, there are, there are people that are part of our family that are very, very gifted at that. And your, your gift is a, gift to the Church of God. It is a blessing to what God is doing. These are diverse ways of worshiping the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, when, you might want to say, He has done something that we recognize and we want to to praise Him for. It comes in different forms. And a little caution here, sometimes we get in the rut of thinking the only way people can worship God is the way that we worship God, because we understand that. So there is some diversity here, and we must recognize that our worship, although varied, becomes uh, uh, because of how God has wired us, is in reality united in spirit. All of them were worshiping Jesus at this point in time. This is a celebration in his honor. So Lazarus was worshiping God by reclining at a table and eating the food? Having maybe his feet washed with other guests? Some of you guys are saying, I like that. yeah. I mean, someone has to serve. Someone has to actually eat, right? But listen to this. We we don't want all the people waiting on the tables. How can you have a potluck if everyone is serving? There have to be people to, to eat, right? What would it be like if you cooked all this food, but no one ate it? Everyone's standing there to serve the food, but reluctant to eat. It would be kind of strange. You realize that when you create that food, and you're serving that food, that people are gonna do what? Eat the food. You don't get upset with them. How can you come and eat this food? How dare you? No, uh, you realize it's part of a bigger whole, that you have a role in that function, right? We don't want all the people to sit and listen. Because if everyone's sitting and listening, guess what? Things happen in the parking lot, all right, the food burns, the coffee's really bad, which would be really, really awful, just so you know, okay? Not everyone can sit and listen. We can't have all the people reclining and eating. Some have to serve. Some sit and listen. Some are reclining and benefiting and enjoying what is taking place here. But there is always the possibility that conflict and squabbles happen because we don't recognize and we don't honor each other with our unique giftedness. I'm not saying these are the only three. There are different ways that we all worship the Lord Jesus Christ but squabbles and conflict can happen when we do not value and don't appreciate the different ways that, because of God's gifting in us, that, we, uh, that, that, that people can worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me write, the servers get upset with the learners. You're always sitting there, you're always listening, you're always taking in, and what about me? I'd like to do that too, All right? Element of truth, possible conflict. The learners get upset with those in the limelight. Who's in the limelight here, apart from Jesus? Lazarus. At that particular moment, guess what? Lazarus should be held up. Why? Because he has a story to tell, and apparently it had been told because the chief priests want to put him to death too, because people were listening to his story, and they're coming to faith in Christ. And we go through times of season where people go through some trials and and God reveals himself and makes himself known through that trial or that difficulty or that circumstance. And you say, you know what? God is using this for a season. We're going to hold this person up, not to worship and adore them, but to recognize that they are being used by God at this point in time to be a beacon of his truth. That means people are running around serving and helping and doing all they can, and they're trying to lift this person up in their particular giftedness at that point in time. You know what, two years from now, it might be you that's being lifted up. This is not a pride issue. This is just what is God doing in the context of the church issue, okay? And then those in the limelight sometimes can get upset with those that are serving because those in the limelight can get a little (laughs) full of themselves if they're not careful. How come the coffee wasn't here sooner and don't you know that I have sugar in my coffee? You should know that. You know, we've, we've done this for at least two days. And you should, you know. I mean, you, you can these attitudes can kick in so easily when we're not recognizing that God uses a variety of giftedness to accomplish his purposes. And he loves worship that comes from a, a variety of different giftings that flow out of a person's heart because that's how he has wired them. So that's the diversity of their fellowship. And fellowship often is very diverse. Secondly, the delight the of their fellowship. Obviously, um, you know, Jesus loved Martha and, and, and Mary and Lazarus. John 11:5 tells us that. So there's this, this passionate, wonderful celebration that is taking place, and there is a in what has taken place is a delight in, in being in the presence with Jesus, not just limited to the good times, but also in times of trial. And you have this, this context of tension, this context of, of, of trial that is still present because the chief priests are still out to get Jesus and they're also now out to get Lazarus and they're out really to, to, to cause trouble for anyone who might be a follower of Jesus Christ. And yet, in this home, There is great celebration taking place, and they are delighting together. And friends, just hear this. This is one of the things that the church has been created for. You and I live our lives. I mean, I asked earlier, so how's your week gone? Really bad? Really good? Uh, For some of us, it's been really rough. For others, it's been time of celebration. Different circumstances. There's fears. There's troubles. But we come together when that context is there, and we're able, in that context, to in something, to delight in Jesus Christ, to delight in the gospel, to delight in the promises of God, to delight that God has created the body of Christ to help us through these times by virtue of him working through them and in us. We need each other. God's created the church, not so that Christians can be isolated, but so that Christians can be together. And so it is a reminder of the kind of fellowship that we, as God's children, are commanded to have when we are told, and this is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I mean, it's this constant context of hostility, but also of joy and accomplishment and celebration, and there's just this mixture, and we need the body of Christ to be that place where we can find and we can, we can rejoice and we can, we can praise Him. But it also speaks to how we gather as families. When you gather with your family, do you, do you gather in such a way that you are lifting Jesus up, that you're trying to be with Him, that you're celebrating the things that He's done? Are, are, you, are you saying, God, okay, you, you've brought us into a trial, um, and, and Lord, we're going to praise you and, and we're going we're gonna to give you all. I mean, on a, on a practical level, it could be something like this. You know, you get your family together and, you know, finances are tough, and you say, Listen, finances are difficult. But you look each other in the eye and say, But we're here. And we're breathing. And it's not over yet. And we have a great God. And so even in the midst of this trial, guess what? We're going to get perspective and we're going to put things in perspective and we're going we're to do all we can to praise God. Now that might be changing some habits. This might be why you don't go to McDonald's that week or you, you don't do X, Y, and Z or whatever it might be. You make choices based on your circumstances for the glory of God and you praise Him with that. So it speaks to how we function as families. It speaks to how we gather as friends. You know, and listen, there's home group tonight. Some of you are going to come into home, group, and you'd be like, oh, this has been such a rough week. Some of you are going to be like, yeah, did you hear the good news? That's that's the way life is. There's a variety of different things that happen in people's lives, but when we get together as friends, what do we do? We celebrate the good times, we celebrate what God is doing and accomplishing through the rough times, too, because we bring it all back to the same place where that arrow is sticking up, glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. It speaks to how we gather as a church. Why are we here? Is it, is it just to be entertained? Absolutely not, it is to draw ourselves as God's people to a place where we're seeing him afresh and we're being nurtured and equipped and strengthened to do what he has called us to do in our lives, whatever that might be. We need each other and we need Jesus Christ in the midst of our gatherings, whether it's in our families, our friends, whether it's the church, and he delights in that. He delights in the celebration that is taking place in this home. It's a beautiful picture of what fellowship should look like. Now, sadly, there is this attitude and this feeling sometimes that, that there should be a somber dullness when we kind of gather together and we do spiritual things that, that laughter or humor is very, very suspect. Now, I want to be careful. I, I'm not talking about slapstick stuff. But there are things that are funny. And there, is, there are things that are humorous. Scripture is very, very clear, I think, and gives us indication. This passage is one. But Ecclesiastes chapter 9 is another passage of Scripture. Now, if you know the story of the book of Ecclesiastes, it's, it's a little, I mean, it's a, it is a head-scratcher to some degree, right? And, and you know, the writer's basically testing life. I, 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 did this, I did this, I did this. It was empty, 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 empty. And you get to the end of the book. Um, if you have Ecclesiastes open, you can look at the end of the book, chapter 12 and verse 13. And it says, you know, this ultimately is what it's all about, fearing God and what? Keeping his commandments. Now, so you can read the end of the story. Here's here, here the bottom line. God has called us and he wants us to fear him and to keep his commandments. Now, how you say that also creates a tone, right? Fear God and keep his commandments. Ah! All right? I mean, it's like, man, oppression, oppression, oppression. Listen, what if Mean to fear God, to, just to recognize that He is everywhere, that He's omniscient, He's omnipotent, He is awesome, He is seated on the throne, He is all powerful. No one compares to Him. And When it says keep His commandments, what are we talking about there? If He says something that we should do, we should what? Do it. So I fear God because He's an awesome God. I, I keep His commandments. Now, uh, to someone who doesn't know, that seems. But to we who know God, we know that he is a good God and we know that his commandments are healthy and right and pure and will be the best for us. So we have those as kind of parameters in the context of that, though. We come to chapter nine and we have this listed for us. Look at verse seven. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. In other words, enjoy life. Enjoy the life that God has given you. Eating, drinking. This is not some kind of a pagan, eat, drink, down, be merry, for you know, do what you want. It's not that idea, but it's like in the context, in the confines of fearing God and keeping his commandments, he wants us to live our lives with joy and merriment. Look at verse 8. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. White garments are garments of joy. Sackcloth and ashes are garments of sadness. Okay? There are times to be sad, but he's saying, listen, put on those white garments, anoint yourself with this oil, celebrate. And in particular, he gives some specific things. Enjoy life with the wife with whom you love. Enjoy that family Relationship. Enjoy that spouse. Enjoy your children. Enjoy your grandkids. All the days of your life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in the toil at which you toil under the sun. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your work. And for some, that's a challenge. I've got to get up. Ugh. You know, I, the, the old story is, you know, this, this guy, it's a Sunday morning, this guy's like, you know what, I'm just not getting up today. And the wife is like, you've got to get up. He says, no, I don't want to go to church. I don't, I don't want to face all those people. Though. I says, Be- yeah, yeah, Well, you have to. She says, why? Well, well, you know, you are the pastor. <laughs> it, it, listen, it, there, there are times that as much as, let say, our, our job is good, there are times when we just, we loathe it, right? But what he's saying is, listen. If you understand fear God keep his commandments and life is, is a time of experience and joy, why are you there? Is it simply to do your job or is the job the context for him to work through you to accomplish his purposes? It changes everything. So, so we approach our relationship with our, our family. We, appro- we, we approach the times of eating and, and drinking. We approach our, our job so that we can exercise joy, and we can have a merry heart. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Just just do it, work hard, but understand, enjoy yourself. Now for some reason, the church gets to the place that to truly honor God. You gotta drop your voice, right? Honor God. It must be somber. It must be a quiet, respectful thing. And, and there are times when that is perfectly appropriate, but friends, let's not stay there when we have the opportunity to celebrate and to rejoice. And friends, this was a time to rejoice. And when we gather together as God's people and we fellowship together, it is a time to be respectful, but to understand that in the confines of fearing God and keeping his commandments, there is the reality of great joy and merriment that he wants us to have. Okay? It doesn't mean, you know, start home group with a, you know, the latest joke section. It just means enjoy one another. Enjoy life. Laugh at things that are funny, that are within the confines of fearing God and keeping His commandment. There's wisdom there, right? But enjoy life. It doesn't have to be this somber thing all the time. So let me encourage you then to think through how we gather together and how you spend time with your family and, and how you flesh fellowship out and the kind of tone and attitude that is there we of all people have much to celebrate every time we're together not just now when was the last time you know you want someone was raised from the tomb no the reality is all of us have been raised from the tomb we were dead in our trespasses and sin and he has made us alive so we're all like Lazarus we all have something to say we have all something to celebrate when we gather together, we can rejoice over that, okay? Now, God's teaching is about the fellowship here of faithful friends, but we also know that even in the best of settings, the potential for trouble is just around the corner. Notice what verse three says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Wow, this is just quite a picture. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But, what? There's always someone who's throwing water on precious, wonderful, worshipful celebration. I shouldn't say there always is, but there often is, right? And here we have Judas. Judas. Verse four, but Judas is scary. I mean, just read Judas is scary, and you just go like, ugh. Uh. I mean, that's, that, we could all do it together if you want, but but you know you, you do, and 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 you know John does that too. But Judas is scary. One of his disciples, and in parentheses it says, ugh. It's there in the Greek, all right. I mean, it is, just, all right. He who was about to betray him. That's a ugh thing. Connected with his name is is that statement, repeatedly. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, there's a number of things we learn from, from him. We're talking here about the hypocrisy of faithless critics. And the first thing I want you to notice is this, that the memory that he leaves Over and over and over again, Judas is mentioned in the Gospels, and he is distinguished by his act of betrayal. And John, in writing this, he is reminded of the way in which Judas chose to deny Jesus with his unbelief. And understand, Judas wasn't simply a victim of God's sovereignty, that he was, through as one of the disciples... And you know, God said, well, uh, well, I guess I'm going to pick Judas and he's going to be the guy. And Judas was like, I don't want to be the guy. I don't want to betray him. I don't want to do that. No, Judas did it because that's what he desired to do. God doesn't force his will, understand? He is working with that person's will. It just happens to be the same thing that God desires. So what, what Judas was doing was completely and totally his responsibility, but it was all part of the divine plan. I know, you have to shake the, you know, the nuts loose in your head when you think about that. But Judas was doing this because he wanted to do this. He was driven by his own lust for money and power. And So just, just think about every time we, we gather for the Lord's Supper. Here's what the passage says, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This repeated ceremony that we are called to celebrate every time we do it, we are reminded of Judas and his betrayal. Quite a memory. Quite a legacy. Notice also the criticism that he gives here. Judas is extremely critical of Mary's extravagance. It's not that he was critical necessarily of the fact that she was anointing him, but it's the extravagance of it all. I mean, this is what he says. Why was the ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, just step back and think about this. Who are the hosts at this party? It's not Judas. He's a guest at the party. So to speak to one of the hosts of the party, in such a disrespectful way, not a good thing. It was also a public criticism. Others heard it, others observed it. Now some people are like Judas, in their criticism and in their discouragement, and I know faces are popping into your head right now. All right? Something you did was too long or it was too short. It was too much, it was not enough. It was soon or is too late. Nothing will be good enough for them because they have a critical spirit and only look at what they don't like, forgetting that the world is not created for them. But friends, more often than not, such criticism is a mask for underlying desires. Power, control, pride, credit, the honor of man, fear of change, Fear of being left behind, fear of being obsolete. We could go on, complaining, discouraging. I mean, why would, why would Judas come and just want to throw, you know, throw water on this beautiful expression of worship that Mary is giving here? Well, thankfully we have John that will help us out here, but he says in verse, in verse 6, Um, He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bags he used to help himself to what was put into them. So we have the criticism that he gives, but then we also have this mask that he wears. This is really the reason. He's putting on a good front. He's saying something that is pious. Something that sounds good. And actually to some degree, reasonable. but there were other underlying motives. It's easy to talk big and pious. It sounds spiritual and may even impress other followers of Christ, but it's another thing to do what he says. And John is giving us indication here that, let's just assume that that was sold and it was put into the money bag so that it could be given to the poor. The question is, would it actually be given to the poor? He really didn't care about giving it to the poor. What he cared about was the fact that that money would come through him, and he could pilfer some of that money out for himself. It was a selfish request. It was a selfish, self-serving criticism. It was the kind of criticism and discouragement that really was not saying anything bad about what was being done. I mean, he did, it was disparaging, but ultimately it was because I want something. He wanted to benefit in a sinful way by their limitation of their worship to God. And friends, this this happens, it happens a lot. It's happened in churches that I have pastored. This happens in the arena, for example, of music. It's not godly to have drums. No, you just don't like drums. No, it doesn't honor God to have drums. All right? All right. Show me in Scripture. Well, I just, I just, it just doesn't honor God. What you're telling me is, it's just what you want. Now, I understand. We all have to make adjustments. But listen, the issue is not the drums, the issue is your heart and understanding what's going on in worship. Now, friends, please hear this. Hear this, hear this. Gateway is not going to have worship wars. You hear me? We're not. We're gonna be careful, we're gonna be tasteful, but when we hear, well, we need to have this, or this instrument's bad, or whatever, it's like, guess what? We're gonna close that down. Because we're not gonna allow someone's preference to dictate what ultimately we do as if it has some spiritual weight to it, because it doesn't. If it does have some spiritual weight to it, then we need to consider it. All right? Soap bottles, step off. But you know what? True. This kind of stuff causes rampant damage in the church, whether it's music or other areas. of, Oh, we think this and we think that. Listen, let's gather together. We will determine as a church how we're going to do certain things, and none of it's going to be perfect. And we can be constructive in our criticism to help, but guess what? There's probably going to be some things that you, know, you just don't like. You, know? you don't like the fact that I don't tuck my shirt in. I'm sorry. No, I'm not. <laughs> yep. Big shirts cover a multitude of sins, right? It's just, <laughs> all right, let's just say it, all right? So I have my own sinful struggles, and you have your own sinful struggles. But see, we, we get these things in our head that it has to be a certain way, and boy, our, our, our sinful flesh can go wild with that, and we need to draw it back in here. And we, we wear these masks of spirituality that oftentimes behind them isn't a spiritual position, it is oftentimes a protection of either a sinful desire that I want to accomplish or a sinful struggle that I'm having. It could be fear, okay? Um, you know, I would think that if actually, if we didn't know all the, the, the background story and the, the, the stuff that John is putting in here, if, if you just had this scenario happen in American Christian culture, I think they would look at the situation a lot differently. I think they would say, you know what, Judas, you, you, you're really saying something important here because we, we do need to save that money, and maybe it would be better if we did sell that because the poor are really important. We need to reach out to the poor, and why waste all this stuff on, on Jesus? Jesus would love for us to go minister to the poor. He's he going to get worship from us all the time, and, and actually Judas would, would appear, I think, to be the balanced, godly individual here, and Mary would be the extravagant weirdo. Now, some of you, some of you are just a little uncomfortable with someone raising their hand when it's time to sing. I'm not gonna point you out, because I'd be raising my hand if I did that, and that would hurt you. Let's just think through this. We we oftentimes are not thinking clearly and thinking biblically about positions and decisions that we make, and how we view things. But clearly, Mary is the one who is in the right here, Judas is in the wrong. Now, there is something about what's going on with Mary, and we need to step there, because this is not just kinda like Pandora's box and to do whatever you want, right? What she was doing was extravagant, but it wasn't just freedom to to, to be what you want in whatever way you want. Judas' issue was the money. Judas' issue was he wanted the the, the glory, he wanted the opportunity to to spend that money. He just was, was throwing that in there. I don't think he really wanted to sell that, but it was just more of a challenge. Now, it's worth noting that Judas was very likely also a gifted person. Now, just think about this. Why was Judas the one that was handling the finances? Why wasn't Matthew handling the finances? He was a tax collector, for crying out loud. He handled money, right? Well, you know, I don't know. No, just we're not told, but we're told that he does handle the money. So it's very possible that he was actually a whiz with finances in that day. I don't know what a whiz would look like. Maybe he had a really big abacus. I don't know. But apparently he was really gifted in that area. But being gifted also creates an opportunity for sin. And oftentimes it is in that area of giftedness where we struggle the most. Okay. I, as someone who stands up before people, I could find myself slipping into sin by saying, hey, isn't it great all these people listen to me? They want to hear me, right? You understand that. But God's called me to do this, but it can get to your head. Just think in in, in the stories in the Bible, Solomon had great wisdom, did a lot of foolish things, right? David was a man of great passion, a man after God's own heart, and yet he controlled control his passion when he saw Bathsheba. And it was just downhill from there. Peter was bold, even to the point where he turned around and said, Jesus, you're not going to do this. He rebuked him. Who are you to rebuke Jesus? See, in the area of strength is often also the area of greatest weakness. And let this just be a warning to us, and I think Judas here is a, you know, is typifying that for us. The next one, the warning that he provides. And I, I think this is something that we really need to kind of just settle in and consider. Listen to J.C. Rowell. You can see in Judas how far a man or woman can go in the Christian profession of faith and have no inward grace. What he's saying is you can see how far someone can go through life under the guise of Christianity but truly not be regenerate truly not be a child of God. Just think about this. Judas heard Christ's teaching. He saw Christ's miracles. He lived intimately with Christ and his disciples. I mean, he was there when Jesus went aside with the disciples and talked to them about all the things that happened that day and what to do and how to do them in preparation. He preached in Christ's name. He cast out demons and healed others in Christ's power. That's what the disciples went out two by two doing. And yet... He is shown to be a man with no inward grace at all. <laughs> Warning. Warning. We can all be doing all the things that are part of the, I might want to say, the fabric of what it means to be the church and do it with a heart that is unregenerate, that does not truly know Jesus Christ, as our personal Lord and Savior, it is not submissive to him as being Lord of our lives and actually willing to betray him if it benefits us. Do you see how far you can go with all those governments of Christian culture and still not be a changed man or woman, still be in blindness and unbelief, still be in darkness rather than light? It's pretty chilling, isn't it? Now I want you to notice the extravagance of fragrant worship. I mean, How do you, how do you summarize what, what Mary is doing here? Whereas Judas is an example of selfish, greedy materialism, Mary is an example of selfless gratefulness of a worshiping believer. What she's doing here is just really staggering. It really is amazing. Verse three again, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I want you to notice first of all that her worship was costly. It was costly. This was, perfume was made out of nard, um, which was a special fragrance from a plant that was grown in India, and so it was transported back into Palestine or Judea at that point in time. And because it was so, it was so, I might want to say, so beautiful smelling as well as so rare, it was very, very expensive. It was also described here as an ointment. Now, when you think of ointment, in our context, you think of something that has kind of a creamy base to it. The idea here really is it's, it's an oil. It's kind of a thick, flowing oil It's the idea behind it. It's also, it's, it's nard, but we're told here it's pure. Um, it's not watered down. Now, you, know, you know how you, you go out and you go shopping for cologne, if some of you do. Some of you need to, but just you go shopping and they have different levels. You, you can get like, you know, eau de toilet, which is like more watered down and you have the pure perfume. I'm, I'm serious, that's the way it is, right? And what's going on here is they're saying this, 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 this perfume that she broke and she poured on Jesus was not watered down. It was the pure stuff. So this is thick. Now I was very, very tempted today just to just to, to load it on, just for a visual example. Alright? Some of you probably think I already did that, but <laughs> but you know the reality is this we're talking about a pound? Just imagine a pound of, of ointment. And her anointing his head and, and body and then and then his his feet? And, and, and anointing is not just kind of like porn, but it's also rubbing in. It's, it's, it's spreading out all across that, that body. And, and obviously, in, you understand, yes, this is, a, this is a woman, this is Jesus, but there's nothing sensual about this at all. This is just anointing that has taken place here. It was costly. She gives it all. It's pure. It's the it's, it's the best. It's the it's all of it that she pours on his body. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. And I just, this, this story here of, of, um, of David who wants to buy a piece of property and uh, wants to buy this piece of property so he can, he can build an altar on it. And so he goes to this man um, named Arana. Get up in verse 22 where Arana hears about what Jesus wants. So this is 2 Samuel 12, verse 22. Let my Lord, the king, take and offer up what seems good to him. In other words, take that you want. 2 Samuel chapter 12, sorry, 24. 2 Samuel chapter 24. All right, picking up at verse 22. Let my Lord, the king, take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, here are the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arona, give And Aruna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. So what, what, what happens here? This, this man hears that David wants this piece of property that he wants to build an altar there so he can offer sacrifices to the Lord, okay? And, and rather than David pay him for that, he says, listen, just, just take the land. And not only that, here, here, is the, here are the sacrifices, and here's the wood to actually make the sacrifice. I mean, he's, he's thinking ahead. He's, th- he's doing it with good motives to, to think about the king and just to honor him. But notice what David says in response. But the king said to Arana, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. And here's the key part, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me, what? Nothing. Offer something to Jesus. When Mary is offering something to Jesus here, it is not something that is nothing, it is something that is something. It is a sacrifice. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Mary, in her worship, was extremely expensive. She, she, um, you know, this, this one pound of nard, as Judas would say, was worth 300 denarii, and we understand from other passages that one denarii was typically one day's wage for a common laborer. So you do the math, transfer it over to our time, California minimum wage, Eight dollars an hour, you know, 40 hours a week for a year—that's in the region of just under twenty thousand dollars. That's a pretty significant amount of money. See where this came from? It may have been a family heirloom, but she poured it all. She broke the top, poured it all on Jesus. My friends, this was an extravagant act of worship because it cost so much. Secondly, I want you to notice that it was public. Now, public ministry was over, but it was still in the context where there are other people watching. That's the point. This wasn't just like a private gathering with her and Jesus. This was, other people were watching, and she felt comfortable, and she was, she was you know, beginning, and she broke, it, you know, broke open this, this alabaster box that had this ointment in it, and, and she starts to, to, to pour it out. She doesn't care what Judas thinks. She doesn't care what, what the others think at all. This is her worship to Jesus Christ. She cares what he thinks. Now friends, there, there, there's a sense in which we, we, we get some of this here as we gather together, as we gather together for worship. Other times when it's like, all right, there's just a few of us here at the beginning, You know, it's early and not everyone's here and we're starting to sing and it's like, how loud do I sing? I don't want people to hear too much of me and that kind of, you know, we can get very, very self-conscious. It doesn't matter. We all make a joyful noise to the Lord. Some of us more joyful than noise, but some of us more noise than joyful. But we all sing. That's just one one area in which this this would apply. It is public in the sense that it it is in a context where other people are seeing it and observing it. And sometimes we're so inhibited by these misunderstandings of what celebration is supposed to look like that we we just are not free. And I don't mean ridiculous. free. I just mean, you know, stop and Look up and sing with joy. There's a freedom that is necessary there. But this was public. It was not only public, it was planned. I, I really I really believe that 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 what Mary is doing here was not just a spontaneous thing. I, I really believe that as she you know, as she experienced you know, Lazarus being, being raised, and the idea that there was going to be this, this, this gathering and this celebration that in her mind things started to churn. And, and the reason I say that is because in Luke chapter 7, verse 36 and following, we have a very, very similar kind of setting, a similar gathering that happened earlier on in Jesus' ministry. It took place at the home of a Pharisee. I'll pick it up at verse 36 of Luke chapter seven. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table and a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house brought an alabaster flask, flask of ointment and standing behind him at his, at his feet weeping she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with, her hair, with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. This is something that has already taken place. And I just really wonder, what in her preparation, she's thinking, how can I express my adoration for who you are, Jesus, and what you have done, and what you mean to me? And she begins to process and plan, this is what I'm going to do. Now, scripture doesn't specifically say it, but I I just wonder if that's the case, because it happened before. Now it's a reminder to us that the way in which we worship does affect other people. We're supposed to sing to one another the songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing to one another. Sing to God, yes, but sing to one another. (laughs) There's there's a dynamic where our worship and our expression of worship also affects how other people see God and see how they are to worship God too. We see some of that coming out here. It It was humble. It was humble. And what, what does she do that is, that is humble? She's washing his feet. Yes, she's anointing his feet, but this was, this was the position, this was the job of the lowest, of the lowest slave in a household, washing the feet of a guest. And then ultimately to be anointing him at his feet. This is all kind of a very, very lowly, um, humble um, expression. Not only that, she, she let down her hair, which was, Culturally scandalous. Um, again, this is a private setting; they're among friends, um, and she is feeling very, very free to worship her 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 Lord, her her Messiah, her Jesus here in, in a way that is very, very expressive. Now we have to understand some of the the significance of why it's a scandal. Um, younger girls in that Judean time would be like most girls, their hair would go all over the place in ponytails and that kind of stuff. But when they, when they reach puberty, they would have their hair up, it would be bound. And of course, scripture talks about the, the woman's hair being her glory. And it wasn't until that wedding night when she's with her husband that she unbinds her hair and he not only sees her naked, but he sees her in all her glory. It was something reserved for him. So it was considered in the culture of the day scandalous. But hear this, there is nothing about what Mary is doing here that is sinful. She is not violating any scripture. So her unbinding her hair and wiping his feet with her hair may have been culturally mm, not the norm, but it certainly wasn't a sinful behavior. We must understand that distinction. But it was radical. And it was an incredible demonstration of her humility and her love for Jesus. It was also prophetic. It was also prophetic. Jesus says, verse 7, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. I don't want to get too much into that statement except to say that what Jesus is is saying is, listen, I'm here now. The church should be doing stuff with the poor. You should be caring about people who are less fortunate and helping out. There is a humanitarian side to the ministry of the church, but he's saying, listen, I'm here now. In the context of what is going on in in his ministry, in his purpose. He is going to be on a cross in a few days. But I'm here now. And so what she's doing is a good thing. She is preparing him for the day of his burial. Now, it's possible that Mary, because she sat at the feet of Jesus, that she was eager to learn, had a greater capacity for belief that she knew that Jesus was going to die. That's a possibility. We're not told but, but as I look at this passage, I think what we have going on here is similar to what we saw in the words of Caiaphas. Go back to chapter 11 and verse 50. Caiaphas here is an answer. The solution to this person's um, uh, interference with what they are doing, he says to the rest of the Sanhedrin, who are panicked over it, is it better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish? And by that statement, it was something that was on his heart. It was a political move, but it was also prophetic. Looking ahead to what Jesus ultimately was going to do. And even here, Mary, when she does her act of worship, and when Jesus commends her by her act of worship, there is something prophetic about it that she is preparing him for burial. But she doesn't know it. (laughs) She's just being extravagant. She's just loving on him. She's just showing how much she appreciates him. And so here we, we just want to pause a little bit and just think about this, this fragrance. And I do want to, I want to push the envelope. I want us to think a little bit more about the, the possibilities of the implications of what Mary has done. If we understand a few things, we may understand some of the implications and the be- what, how, how this is incredibly beautiful not only as an example, but also for Jesus who was going to go through great suffering. Jesus will be dead in about a week. First thing. Getting to the end of the story here. It's Passion Week. Secondly, people in the country of that day typically did not bathe regularly. Now, some speculation here, I understand, but I just want you to think through this. Third thing, the overabundance of this oil that is put on Jesus by Mary so that (laughs) Jesus stinketh. I mean, just get some of the connection here. I mean, Jesus now stinks. The room stinks with a beautiful smell. It didn't stop stinking, and he didn't stop stinking the moment he left the house. When you spray on your perfume, you're not expecting it to disappear when you walk out the door. The whole point is that you smell good when you walk out. You could care less about home. An ointment like that, that oil would be rubbed into the skin. So everywhere Jesus went from that day forward, there would be this lingering smell and a reminder of what he came to do. As Jesus served the Last Supper, and as Judas went off to betray him, there's this fragrant smell that Jesus himself could smell because he had been anointed and was reminded he came to do this. When he prayed to the Father in the garden, he's sweating drops of blood. There's also then this this odor that's mingled with that, reminding him of what he came to do. When Jesus is arrested, he's mocked, and he's flogged, the oil there, over time, but it's still there to some degree. You guys know what I'm talking about. You go home and you, you put on a shirt that you wore like a, you know, a week ago, even it went through the wash, and you can still smell some of that perfume or that cologne, or maybe I'm not talking about you, maybe it's just me, but, right? but it's there. It lingers. And the possibility that when Jesus hung on the cross and he's suffering and his head drops down and he's, he's smelling again, skin that is there. I don't know, but this fragrance, I don't think, stopped and vanished. I think it was, and was a fuel and a reminder of what Jesus came to do. Now that is not something that scripture says specifically. But we are told that sacrifices offered up to God are a sweet-smelling fragrance. And since Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, he is the sweetest-smelling fragrance ever to be offered to God. Listen to Ephesians chapter five, verse two. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I just wonder, I wonder if all that is contained in the picture of what is going on here. Now briefly, we'll bring this to a close. Three concluding thoughts. Number one, Just think about all the different ways that God uses the senses to describe his gospel. Sight, I am the light of the world. The healing of the man born blind. Taste, I'm the bread of heaven. I'm the living water. Touch, remember this not in John, but the the woman with the issue of blood who touched the edge of his garment. Hearing, of course, all those times when he spoke in the wilderness to the multitudes and they heard and they listened when he was at the temple, anytime he's teaching. But here we have the smell (laughs) that that God would be declaring his gospel through the sense of smell. Then I want you to just be reminded of the the gospel leaves a legacy. Judas left a legacy. What kind of legacy does Mary leave? Matthew 26, verse six, that parallel passage, Jesus says, for she has done a beautiful thing to me. You know, that's a pretty good legacy. Mark's gospel says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. That's a pretty good legacy. My question is, what's your legacy going to be? That should be a question for us. In what way am I continuing to proclaim the glories of Christ? There's a final one here. Let's take a moment or two to kind of work through The gospel is a fragrance. Second Corinthians chapter two, verse 14 and following, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. All that's going on in this home is, in a sense, a picture of the greater reality of that God's people are in the context of hostility and we are a fragrance to all that are around. Some want to put us to death. Some will believe because we are exuding this beautiful perfume of the gospel. And We saw Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus learning. We saw her at the feet of Jesus mourning. We saw Mary at the feet of Jesus, worshiping and anointing him. But we also see Mary, I believe, with a group of women at the feet of Jesus when he's hanging on the cross, weeping. And I wanna take us to one passage of scripture, Revelation chapter seven, because I think there's one more location where Mary is at the feet of Jesus. But the reality is, we're gonna be there too. Revelation seven, Verses 9 and 10. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's the multitude that's saying that. And to be sure, Mary is there too. Friends, we serve a great God who is worthy of our best worship, who is worthy of our purest worship. In the midst of our worship, our sin can get in the way and our, our flesh can, can captivate us and we can just oh, throw water on what beautiful worship looks like, but he calls us, he desires for us to look to him, to love him, and with the gifts that he's given us and with the things that we have to give him our best, to give him our, uh, the, the glory that he is due, and to live our lives in such a way that we are daily praising him no matter what the circumstance, because he ultimately is the God of this universe, and he sits on his throne. He is high and lifted up, and his robes fill the temple. They permeate and are the fragrance of heaven. Lord, help us today. In whatever meager way that we have, Lord, to worship you, to do it it for your glory, and to be extravagant, Lord, in a way, Lord, that is, is measured and fashioned by your truth. We ask, Lord, in your name.